I'm Earl Fontenelle. This is the Schweb, the Secret History of Western Esotericism podcast. And today we're speaking with Charles G. Heber, um, who is professor of African, Middle Eastern, and South Asian languages and literatures and religion at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, in the United States of America. Charles, thank you very much for coming on the podcast to talk to us about the Mandeans. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's my pleasure to discuss the Mandaeans whenever I can, so I'm happy to be here. The basics then. Let's get started on these these people. What is a Mandean? And what is the sort of basic history of this religion? Well, yeah, there's a there there are two things that often get conflated um in the sense that uh, we have a history of the Mandaeans and we have a history of scholarship on the Mandaeans and they often get confused with one another. So the, the community that uh, I'd like to discuss today is a community of uh, a, an ethno-religious community from the marshy areas at the head of the Persian Gulf uh, in what is today Iraq and the southern Ir- Iranian province of Khuzestan. And uh, I should add by the way, as a consequence of the uh, um, 2003 coalition invasion of Iraq, uh, many of the people who lived in Iraq have subsequently fled to the West. So there's also a global diaspora. Right? Initially, uh, a lot of Mandaeans ended up in Syria and Jordan. Uh, obviously, the community that was in Syria has subsequently sought uh, asylum elsewhere. Um, so if we were to talk about where they live today, where the members of this community live today, they're primarily in places like Sweden, Australia, the United States and Canada, Germany, the Netherlands. Um, and it really doesn't make much sense to talk about them as a community of the Middle East, except insofar as that's where their origins are, quite pointedly. And, and many of them are quite proud of this fact because they view themselves as, and many others in their neighborhood, also view them as one of the oldest sort of autochthonous religious traditions in the area. Got it. Uh, so what distinguishes them from their neighbors, because I describe them as an ethno-religious group, right, is that they, first of all, they're wholly endogamous. They do not accept either converts from other traditions, nor do they accept intermarriage. So if you marry out of the tradition, you continue to be Mendian, but your children are not necessarily Mendian. Certainly no priest will baptize them. And that's one of the, the central sacraments of this community is frequent baptisms or ablutions in running water. So uh, to a very large extent, that means that you are excommunicated, although in the absence of a kind of Mendian Vatican or, you know, a college of clerics or anything like that, what excommunication means in this context is an open question. So that's number one. Um, Number two is that they follow a different religion, which at times resembles or engages with the religions of their neighbors, which is to say uh, Christians, Jews, Muslims, of course, and even Zoroastrians, but is not identical or coterminous with any of these. It can't be identified as a sect uh, of any of these traditions. And uh, they follow a large corpus of literature, you know, writ large scriptures, Uh, in a unique form of Aramaic, uh, which is their heritage language. There are still some people uh, in Iran, principally in the city of Ahvaz in the south, but also in Tehran, and increasingly in places like the United States and Sweden, and Australia, of course, I should mention. There's a smaller community of people who speak this language in Australia and the United States. Uh, They speak this unique form of Aramaic, written in its own unique script. And I describe this as a heritage language because although the majority of people uh, who are Mandayan, who profess this faith, do not necessarily speak the language fluently, many of them can read it, particularly the educated ones. And there is a small and I should say dwindling community of of Mandayans in Ahvaz, in Iran, in Tehran, also in Australia and in the United States, principally around the city of San Antonio, who continue to speak this language as their first tongue. And um, this language and the scriptures, which it encodes, uh, have been for hundreds of years now, the principal subject uh, and fascination of Western scholarship on the Mandaeans, right? The community itself has uh, 
been documented to some extent, but there are no real hardcore ethnographies of the community in the way that there are of so many other communities from the Middle East. Um, the closest we have, of course, is the work of, of uh, uh, Ethel Stefana Drauer, uh, who wrote a large book in the 1930s called The Mendians of Iraq and Iran, in which we documented, documented some of the rituals and practices and beliefs of the Mendians. Uh, but she was entirely an autodidact. She was a lady of leisure. She was a friend of all of these sort of uh, adventuresome British women uh, like Agatha Christie, who was one of her intimates, uh, and others uh, not British like Freya Stark uh, and Gertrude Bell, uh, who adventured throughout the Middle East and, and basically documented what they saw at the time. So she's very much in that vein. And uh, we owe quite a lot about what we know to the religion to her, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that you can't depend entirely upon the account of one woman uh, or one man for that matter. And we don't have people who are trained as ethnographers and anthropologists who have been doing much work on this community, unfortunately. So we have this kind of uh, mandaic language and people have, I guess, people who already worked on Syriac or whatever have, have learned it and studied it from this kind of textual text critic history of religions perspective, but um, leaving aside the fact, well, it's often safer to just work with texts rather than a living community because you can make kind of more absolute statements, but is there anything we can call a Mandean scriptural canon? We have this massive amount of writings from, from what I gather. Is there a kind of canonicity what is the situation? How do Mendians uh, regard their scriptures? Well, actually, uh, as it happens, this is precisely the project that brought me here to the Institute uh, for Advanced Study at Princeton. Basically, not only do they have a canon, but we can sort of view the emergence of this canon, the evolution of it uh, in real time, in the sense that they have a large library of books, um, often preserved in the form of a codex, right? Like a, a traditional Western book. But also we have illuminated scrolls and other, other forms of, uh, uh, of uh, literature, and uh, including the uh, incantation bowls about which your viewers know something. And uh, these books, when they are completed, always end in a colophon. And these are chunky colophons, right? It's not atypical for books to have colophons in them. Uh, even in the Western tradition, in which the author tells you something about himself or herself and uh, the, the circumstances under which uh, he or she composed the book. In the Mandayan case, we have these lineages of copyists who start off with their own name and their own priestly lineage, going back sometimes 15, 20, 30 generations of the priests who initiated their father and the priests who initiated so on and so forth, right? So we learn quite a lot about Mandayan society that way. But also the copyists, the, the, the copyists include a kind of a chain of where they found the book that they've copied and for whom they've copied it and the predecessors along this chain. So I found this book. It was copied by so-and-so for so-and-so going back again, maybe 15, 20 generations. So the interesting thing about this is that most of the books for which we have colophons, also attest to a history of redaction. So the chief scripture of the Mendians, the one that people often call the Mendian Bible, is called the Genzaraba, which it means the great treasure or treasury or library in Mandaic, right? The word Genza, which literally means treasure, it comes from a, uh, uh, an Iranian root, can also mean a treasury of books collected in a certain place and therefore a, a library of this has no fewer than seven such colophons. This is atypical, right? It's not typical for a book to have more than one colophon just sort of uh, sitting at the end of the book. So we can infer from this that there were at least seven manuscripts that were collated at some point in history and brought together in the form of this one very large manuscript. And uh, indeed, that seems to be the case. If you actually read the colophons and you look at the chains of priests who copied them, after a certain point, they diverge, right? Think of it, for example, as an illustration of a tree. You have the trunk in which you have the same priests uh, copying all of the colophons in all of the manuscripts that we have. And then you have the branches of the tree spreading out 
uh, because at some point they diverge and different people are copying from different people's copies. Mm. But before that trunk, we have a system of roots in which the seven parts, uh, Mark Kinsparski, the German, um, Polish-German Semitist, described these as tractates. We have these tractates that were at one point separate and apparently circulated separately. So in reality, what has happened is, as a kind of a process of, of canonization, priests at some point decided in the late medieval ages to unify a group of disparate texts into one large scripture. Now, that is often called the Mendiam Bible, but it's not the only scripture that they use. Another scripture that you often will find in the homes of Mendiam's both lay and, uh, and priestly is uh, the book of John, uh, which is, although it's called the book of John, and the John in question refers to John the Baptist, or the baptizer, it actually contains quite a lot of material about other figures from Mendelian tradition, right? It's, it's also eclectic in the same way that the Genzarabba is eclectic. And at times it even reproduces portions of that other manuscript. So these two were evidently brought together in a kind of parallel process as Mandaeans determined for themselves what their body of sacred literature would look like, right? This is a process presumably initiated by, or at least demonstrated by, Mandaean priests and copyists. Uh, although we unfortunately know very little about what the thinking was that went into the creation of a Mandaean canon. We are so unbelievably lucky to have the this colophon tradition, because yeah. this kind of Roots leading into a trunk leading into uh, separation is the story for any text, especially religious texts that are worked on year after year and then maybe uh, modified to um, evolve along with the changing beliefs of the community, etc., etc. There's all different ways this can happen. But no one ever says, and I did this, right? But in, yeah. in this textual canon, you actually have people say, saying, my name is such a thing, I was taught by blah, 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 going way, yeah, way back. Exactly. And back, this, yeah. and you, you have this, you have something maybe analogous in the Hadith literature in Islam, but it doesn't start from the time of the prophet Muhammad, it starts from like three, 400 years later and says, my, I learned this from da, 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 going all the way back to that guy. And then there's this massive historical gap. And then you have the supposed uh, original kind of companions, right? But here we seem to have chains going back to not, maybe not the beginning, but late antiquity anyway, no? Well, the, the at some point, the chains probably become somewhat fictive, as right. I'm sure the headings are as well. Yeah, I can trace my chains in the sense that we have so-and-so copied from so-and-so uh, and there's, you know, kind of they kept the receipts, right? That right. they we know that there was something concrete there because what was concrete there was the manuscript that they're copying. That goes back to a generation or a few generations before Islam. Got it. So we're looking at like sixth century, roughly speaking, right? Very and late antiquity. So, so now we have we have some copyists also say, well, this is my duan, and I copied it from the manuscript of one figure. Um, in many of these manuscripts, in the tradition of the canonical prayer book, for example, or some of the other manuscripts uh, uh, with which we deal, whose name is Zazaid Gwazta. We know very little about this figure, except in the canonical prayer book, one of the copyists, Ramoya Barakaimat, who is uh, also a figure of the same period, says that Zazaid Gwazta copied this manuscript 368 years before one of these figures, one another copyist by the name of Enish Bardanka, met with the Arabs uh, upon the coming of the Arabs, right? And so in my own analysis, right, Enish Bardanka in the Harangwetha, which is another manuscript of this tradition, and in the canonical prayer book, uh, meets with the Arabs slightly after the conquest of Iran in 650, but before the death of the Sasanian emperor, Yazdegerd, um, because in the account that we have that's attributed to him, uh, he kind of threatens the the representative of the, the Muslims, uh, a man named Abdullah, with uh, the same fate as the Sasanians if they should impinge upon the rights of the Mandaeans. And he refers to the Sasani emperor as living. He says, this is what happens. This is what should happen to him. And this is what will happen to you uh, if you don't respect our, our rights. And so that suggests a very discreet time for this encounter. Whether the encounter happened or not, it's not my concern, right? It's just that 
within the manuscript tradition, this encounter is presented as a fact, and the same tradition instantiated by the manuscript tradition refers similarly to a figure from 368 years before this, which is Zazay Barguazda, which would bring us into the third century, right? Yep. We're talking about around the time of Shabor or his successors. And so that would be the earliest datable historical figure uh, from this lineage of copyists. Got it. Say third century. Now, some of my colleagues would, would say, well, you know, this is these are pre-modern people. I don't know how well they can copy numbers, that sort of thing, or do these sorts of calculations. But, you know, in my scholarship on the Mendian calendar, first of all, they've kept it very faithfully uh, for at least 1,400, 1,500 years, right? And across all the manuscripts, when they deal with numbers, large numbers, including dates and other large sums of figures, uh, they copy them quite accurately across all these various stems of manuscripts. So I don't think that the argument that they just weren't capable of remembering up to 368 really holds water here. So I, I'm, I'm inclined, absent other evidence, to accept that this figure, um, Zazai, the earliest copyist, the historical copyist that we can trace, was indeed a figure of the third century, which is why I, unlike some other people, would date Mandayan manuscripts to that period. But some of them, not all of them, obviously. Got it. Now, there is one other um, figure that is a historical figure mm-hmm. that plays a very big role in this. And he's in the first century, and he's John the Baptist. Right. So maybe that brings us to a nice segue for what do these people believe? What is the Mandean religion all about? Because they're positioned as followers of John the Baptist, right? And in the uh, prologue to the Gospel of John, John says, he makes a point of saying, there's this guy called John. It's not me, it's a different guy. He's John the Baptist. Now, he mm-hmm. is not the foretold messianic figure he came to proclaim the foretold messianic figure that to me says there are people in the early community that john has heard the arguments of who are saying john the baptist is the guy and he has to kind of take a position against that no no no. john the baptist isn't the guy he's important but jesus is the guy so that tells us just abinicio that john the baptist has there are people around in say the first century who think john the baptist is the guy and seemingly the, the Mandaeans are among that uh, group of people who decided that this right. particular guy is the guy. So what do they think about John the Baptist? And then if you can talk about their religious beliefs, their spiritual beliefs, the kind of worldview we're looking at, I would uh, be intrigued. Well, the, uh, the relationship with John is complex, as you might imagine. And, you know, it's, it's not even just the fact that we have this engagement in the Gospels with John, which is peculiar, right? For example, him, the scene of his baptism of Jesus as well seems to suggest that the early Christian community or the community that would become the Christians at that point, because they had yet not yet hit upon that name, yeah. were engaging with people who may have been followers of John. And in fact, when we read the, the kind of parallel traditions like Josephus, right? John the Baptist looms quite large in Josephus, Contrary to Josephus' references to, to Jesus, which may, some people believe, be pious interpolations many years later. Right. But no one argues that the, his, his, his discussion of John isn't at all uh, legitimate. I mean, it's, it's part of the manuscript tradition from the very beginning. So evidently, Josephus, among others, took note of this John the Baptist and his followers, the movement that evolved around him. Now, whether you can draw a direct line between that movement and the Mandaeans is an open question, Right. As I said, the the textual trail uh, runs cold in in about the the middle to the late third century. So we don't have anyone going all the way back to John. And certain scholars, starting with the beginning of the 20th century, have pointed out that at some points, John looks adventitious in this tradition, right? I mean, there are reasons for which, including the aforementioned story of Enish Bardanka and his meeting with the Arabs, that we may think that perhaps they modified their beliefs in some way to accommodate those of their neighbors. Now, this is a process that happens all the time, right? We've seen this with Christians, for example, in late antique uh, Europe and in the Mediterranean area, 
Christianity accommodated the beliefs of those followers of traditional religions around them, resulting in the complex of beliefs that we today call Christianity, uh, which probably would not be recognizable necessarily to members of that same first century community. So it's not unusual that Mendian should do this, and I'm not saying that it's in any way a sort of fake, hybrid, or illegitimate religion, but it does seem on one hand that during the Islamic period to the present date, John the Baptist grew larger and larger in importance um, precisely because he was a figure with whom they could engage in dialogue with Muslims and Christians at the very least. Now, that being said, I and others like me, like Edmond de Lubieri, believe that John the Baptist was present in this tradition from the very beginning. However, he is in no ways the founder of this religion, right? They never make that claim, uh, nor is he in any way sort of like, he doesn't have this quality, right? He doesn't have this quality of being kind of the paramount prophet of the Mendines. So you, you had asked me about their beliefs, and um, I mentioned earlier the fact that they engage in frequent baptisms. And uh, when we talk about beliefs with the Mendines as with many other co uh, communities, we have to kind of separate the beliefs of the people who are adherents to this religion and the kind of religion of the book, because gotcha. this is a religion of text, right? So uh, as you had alluded to earlier, this is a community that is sort of stratified into uh, sacred and secular spheres. The vast bulk of Mandaeans uh, particularly those who don't belong to priestly families. And uh, to be a member of a priestly lineage is a, a, a rare distinction. They do not really engage with these texts, right? They don't have them in their homes. They don't commission them to be copied. It's, it's very rare. It's mostly priests and priest, members of priestly families who do this work. And what they know about their religion is, uh, is very limited. It's, it's basically, it belongs to the area of ritual, right? There are certain practices that they do on certain holidays. They're aware of the sacred calendar. They're aware of certain traditions. They're aware of food ways, right? We don't eat this, we eat this, and so on and so forth. So that, by and large, is what their religion looks like to lay members of the community. And, and I would argue that this is also typical for most, uh, particularly pre-modern, pre-Protestant Christian right. adherents of any religion, right? right. I mean, there's no, no, there's, there's no, there are no Mendian Bible study groups, right? But then again, there weren't such things among any members of any religion outside of priestly spheres anyway. So yeah. this is, again, not at all unusual. With the priests, it's a different story. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are certain priestly lineages. And um, in order to become a priest, because you can be initiated as a priest without being a member of this family, but they have to go back seven generations and look to see if anything funny is going on, you know, whether there's a history of certain illnesses, whether you yourself are deficient in any way, whether you are ill or mutilated, whether there are any converts or any questions of people in your lineage who may not have been entirely Halali Mandaeans, right? They have to get rid of that first. They have to control for that. And then you can become a priest. So priestship tends to run in families from father to son, typically. Now, in the past, there's evidence that this may have all been very different, right? One of the interesting things, going back to the question of John the Baptist and his role in the Mandaean community, is that in many ways, there's a figure called Merye, whom some Christians identify with Mary, the mother of Jesus, who prefigures John and his role in later Mandaean texts, right? She is involved in an account of the visit of a strange man. And that's how he described as Gabra Nochoyo to Jerusalem. The strange man comes and discovers that the Jews are persecuting his followers. And so he levels the place. He destroys it. Okay. I mean, this is, we're dealing with the supernatural, right? Got it. Whether there was a destruction of Jerusalem, which there were multiple times. Of course. History, yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, and to the extent to which these destructions of Jerusalem were endowed with a kind of supernatural or esoteric significance is a, another question, of course. In their telling of this story, in the oldest versions, it's Mary to whom this supernatural figure visits. And the reason why he visits her is because, well, she is not a Mandaean. She is, in fact, a Jew. She is the daughter of the high priest of the Jews. Uh, some accounts and some folk traditions identify her also as being descended from Nebuchadnezzar, which is interesting in and of itself. And uh, she encounters a Mandaean community in which she hears their, their prayers, and she's so moved by it that she decides to become Mandaean, right? 
and she's visited in some traditions by her spiritual double and in others by this light world figure himself, also described as the strange man and uh, or the stranger. And uh, uh, she rapidly acquires the status of a priest. So in the book of John, she's described as sitting on the banks of the Euphrates, preaching, reading from a book and so on and so forth. And all the birds and, and the fish and the animals are listening to her, such as the power of her words. But the interesting thing about this story is that none of these things happen in Mendaism today. Right? There are no women priests. There certainly have not been any women priests within living memory of any of the priests that are alive today. And there are no converts, right? Mandines are very clear about this. You know, in order to be a Mandine, being a Mandine is a matter of being born a Mandine. That's what there is. You, you don't become Mandine by converting. And yet, right smack dab, literally in the center of the book of John, which is their most sacred scriptures, you have this account of a woman converting and basically becoming a priest. So I would argue, and I have that uh, in many ways, John, who in later texts, such as the Haranguetha, also gets this visit by the strange man who ends up destroying Jerusalem, has acquired some of the characteristics of Merye in the retellings. Right. And, and for multiple reasons, maybe accommodation with Islam, because obviously Islam was the religion of the dominant society, and uh, all, things such as, for example, the ban against conversion, which is nowhere made explicit in the sacred texts may have arisen as a way of negotiating conflicts with their Muslim neighbors, right? Because you cannot convert from Islam. It's impossible. Yeah. So one could easily imagine a situation in which maybe there were uh, Muslims in southern Iraq and Iran who say, well, this religion is really cool, or I've just met this really cool Mendayan lady and I want to marry her, and the kind of conflicts that would emerge out of that. And so the Mendayans, obviously, they, they in, in my view, had, had adopted this prescription against intermarriage and conversion in order to avoid that. Right. So among the many ways we are not a threat to you, Islam, um, yeah. one of them is that we will not even try to funnel off any Muslims to join us. In fact, we can't. So really don't worry. Is that the kind of yeah, model? Yeah, exactly. Got it. Well, so that may be one of the sources of what you described earlier as the sort of esoteric nature of their faith in that they don't accept converts and they seem to be fairly close knit. Uh, but again, this is fairly typical of religious minorities in the Middle East, which can be a kind of a tough place to be a religious minority. Yep. So it's maybe in that light, not so spectacular. Got it. Yeah. Well, it, one of the things about the esoteric that I want to kind of emphasize in this podcast and something I keep being struck by again and again is how you can be super mainstream. You can even be a uh, dominant, uh, even a totalizingly dominant religious tradition in a given culture and still have esoteric aspects yeah, within course, what you're yeah, doing, absolutely. right? So esoteric doesn't mean marginal fringe necessarily. It often means that, but um, it can also mean super mainstream, even imperially legitimized, you know? Now, you just mentioned a bunch of interesting stuff there on the doctrinal aspect of, of things. But mm. before we get to that, you mentioned divine doubles and you mentioned a light world. And so everyone in yes. the in our audience is going, whoa, 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 back up. Did you just say something yeah. that sounds really Manichaean? Because I think you did. But before we get to that, women. Because we do also have in our chains of transmission of these texts some female scribes, right? Not just female copyists, but there's reference to a female rishemme or leader of the community. So seemingly women at times, at least in the, in the history of this group have played yeah. what we might think of as quite surprisingly prominent roles in the power structure, in the internal yes. dynamics, which is yes. very interesting. Yes, it is absolutely the case that women were, I mean, there were 10, nine or 10 uh, legendary Rishime who are the leaders of the community of whom one of the ones prior to Islam was indeed a woman. Now, modern Mandaeans have different ways of looking at this. So, for example, some of the more conservative clerics would say these were not actually, in fact, scribes or Rishime. They were women who were so pious that because of their piety, they were given this title just sort of as a right. consolation gift. But that is very much a kind of retrospective approach to this. The, the text itself gives no indication that you could even interpret it in this manner because their, their names are read at Lofani, just like every other one. No one says, we're just including this as a kind of aside. So 
Yes. So, so women were at one point an integral part of this tradition, as illustrated even by the story of Marie herself, which is yeah. one of the most important stories. But for reasons which are not immediately clear, that has changed in a profound way. Gotcha. Now, let's, let's talk about Mandian beliefs. Yes. What's this light world all about? Well, I mean, if you had to give uh, introduction to Mandian religion in a kind of theology department, right? In, yeah. a, in a reasonably quick summary way, what would you, how would you lay it out to start with? To get, just to get our bearings a little bit, like who is God? Like, are there angels? Yeah. This kind of stuff. Well, this is the interesting thing. And so far as there are no, there's no Mandian Vatican, obviously. There's no yeah. uh, systematized account of their theology, which makes it difficult to say these things. But broadly speaking, right, uh, Mandaism posits that the world in which you live is the product of a progressive series of emanations from a primal principle, often called the, uh, the great first mana. A mana is a term that uh, obviously it's, it's, it's one of these... Uh, terms to enchant with. Uh, it may mean thing, it may mean vessel, no one is actually exactly sure what the interpretation is. So I refer to him this being as the great first mana, or the, 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 the great life, right? It was in some accounts, in some of the texts, identified with the great mana, and in others seems to be an emanation. But so there are a progressive series of emanations from this being, which results in, among other things, a first life, a second life, a third life, and a fourth life. Each of these emanations is inferior to the one that preceded it. Mm -hmm. So the great life is the greatest of all, before which there were none. The first life is uh, the kind of like maybe the, the, the God to which people, um, the, the being to which people often invoke their prayers. The second life is a different matter, right? His name is Yoshamin, which is sometimes identified with the, um, the Hebrew Adonai Shemaim, right? The God of heaven, uh, for obvious reasons. And uh, he decides that he wants to be an agent of creation just like the, uh, the first life was. So the first life has created a, a light world and populated with emanations of himself called Ethri, right? Or excellencies. And uh, this is kind of like a perfect world. It's countered by a world of darkness, right? And, and, and in the Mandayan tradition, no one is exactly sure where this world of darkness comes. Was it pre-existing or, as some would say, just as there is always light, there must be a shadow. So the world of darkness is indeed the kind of shadow of the world of light. It just came into being simultaneously with the existence of the light. Got of it. Light. Yoshamin wants to have his own world, and so he engages in a separate creation, right? Um, he has a an additional emanation called the third life, the third life, called whose name is Awathur. Um, and there's a fourth life whose name is Tahil, which looks very similar to the name of the uh, the in in the um, Memphite cosmology, the name of the god uh, Ta in Egyptian, which yeah. is significant because it is in fact this this figure, this Ibtahil, who engages in the creation of the physical world in concert with these preceding figures, each worst, each of which is not as great as the last one. So you know, Yoshamin uh, is a proud. He's often described as the peacock. He starts a war in heaven uh, with Mendote, who is another one of these uh, emanations, these light world figures of the uh, the great first mana. And uh, Awathur plots with Ibtahil to create the material world, which is in very many ways a kind of mixture of the world of light and of the world of darkness, much like Ibtahil himself. I mean, I'm getting ahead of myself, but uh, one of the things that happens is that this figure descends into the, the third life, descends into the world of darkness, where he is married to a Lilith, a figure of the darkness called Zarnai, who gives birth to the um, to Ibtahil. Now, some would say, of course, that uh, it's not actually the third life that does this, but a double. Um, this is one of the interpretations of this text. But in any case, the result is that the fourth and least of the lives 
is a product of both worlds. And it's natural that he should create this muddy earth, this inferior earth, right, right, in which we find ourselves, uh, because he is a product of both light and darkness. He's kind of the king of the world in which we find ourselves, and therefore of all of humanity. So the other belief they have is, because you can see the, the, the emerging theme of doubles, is that in addition to the world in which we find ourselves, or tivel, right, using the Hebrew word for uh, the world tevel, there is another world called mshunikishta, uh, which is a kind of perfect double of this world. And in that world, we find everything that we find in this world, except no one dies of sickness or illness. No one is deficient in any way. They're not missing any bottle parts. They're not blind or deaf or anything. There is no disease. Everything is perfect. And the perfect version of everything that exists in this world also exists there. When you, as a human being, die, and particularly as a Nasorian, because the question is open as to whether those of us who do not practice this religion also participate in the same process. When you die, your soul travels to this Mshunikashto, right, where you lead a perfect existence. And you kind of exchange places with your double. And the physical, you acquire the physical body of your double, mm -hmm. uh, which is perfect in every way. So if you were mangled in an accident, for example, in the in Mshunikashto, you would not have to do deal. You would not have any deficiencies. You, you would have everything restored. And the soul of the double ascends into the worlds of light. Okay, so everyone gets an it's upgrade. original home. Everyone gets an upgrade. Everyone gets to go back to their place of origination, at least until the end of the world, which is another story. To add spice to this emanatory uh, cosmology, let's talk about mm -hmm. the end of the world, the end times, because yeah. that's always fun. And I'd love to talk about the idea of a savior figure in this religion as well because these are two things that we we get for seemingly whenever there's some second temple judaism in the dna of your religion which seemingly there is in this religion like everyone else in the region you always have a savior figure of some kind and you always seem to have an end times of some kind so what's going on there well the savior story goes back all the way to the story of adam so in this tradition as many others from the region there is this figure adam the first man and he is a product of, um, he is created by Ibtahil, right? This, this kind of demiurge figure who's half light, half darkness. Uh, but he can't, he can't take him to the next level, right? The atom that he creates is mute and almost like an animal. And uh, he just sort of lies there on the ground. Meanwhile, in the worlds of light, people have cottoned on to this scheme of Ibtahil to create a new world. And they decide to kind of seed it with a, a, a shard or vestige of the great mana to kind of bring about its ultimate end. So Mendote, who is the savior's figure of which you, you speak, Mendote descends into the world and secretly brings the soul to, um, to Adam giving him the, the ability to speak and to move on his own power and, uh, you know, and a mind, uh, unlike the animals. Uh, but he does this in secret so that neither Ibtahil nor the, the, the malign influences with which he's allied, right? In order to control this world, Ibtahil uh, makes a pact, so to speak, with the planets hmm. and with Ruha, the, the spirit, Right. Ruha is the animating principle that gives uh, the ability to move to animals, but they, they lack a soul like we do, uh, which comes from the world of light. He makes a pact with Ruha and her children, the seven planets, to kind of govern this world because that's what the planets do. Uh, but it's a bad pact because in making this pact, he limits himself and he gives them power over him. So this is why Mentote needs to do this in secret to to bestow a soul upon Adam. Now, this is the first interference of the savior figure in human history. And there are several others, right? So right. there are light world beings who are at times identified with the children of Adam. It's not clear to what extent they are, in fact, the children of Adam's or merely their doubles. Uh, and this is Hebel or Abel, Shetel, Seth, and Enish. 
And these three figures form a kind of a triad. And I, I say it's a triad because very often when you're reading a text in the Mandaean tradition, in the Genzaraba, for example, sometimes you find the name of Hebel doing things. Sometimes you find it's actually Mendot Hay who takes the role of Hebel Ziwa. Sometimes it's Enesh Ithra, who is, for example, the strange man that visits Jerusalem and destroys it. Often he's identified with Enesh Ithra. These three figures act and behave much as they're same. And they are in many ways the the kind of savior figures that uh, define this religion. Shetel, of course, is, is significant because according to the Mandayan tradition, he is the first human to die. Adam decides in his old age he doesn't want to die. So Shetel offers himself up and he is at that point pure. He's had no child of his own. He's never laid with a woman. So he makes a kind of pure sacrifice to go to the light world. And so he is dignified as the first human to, to die and then embark upon this process that I earlier described. Got it. And what does Adam do? I, I take it Adam is sort of like the primordial anthropos figure. He's not a human in, as we know humans, is he? Is he? He's sort of like a cosmic being of some kind. Well, he has a double as well. There's Adam Kadmoi, and then there's uh, Adam Kosoyo, who's uh, the hidden Adam. Um, I presume this is his double in the in, in Mshuni Kishto, because as I said, everything on, in the material plane has its double. Um, he lives a supernaturally long uh, age, as you know, many of the antediluvian figures in, in the Jewish and Christian tradition do. He eventually does die, but he's wedded to his body. And that, that is one of his, his distinguishing features is that unlike, for example, John, who has no time for his body. Famously, John says, why would you even build me a mausoleum? Like, I, there's no point. Uh, Adam is in love with his body. He doesn't want to leave it. When Mendote comes to fetch him, he says, no, but my body is so precious to me. I don't want to see it become food for the worms and so on and so forth. So in many ways, Adam is all too human, despite being supernatural in this respect. Right. Interesting. So that, that, that brings things very much out of the realm of what we might want to think of as mythic metaphysics or whatever kind of thought world we've been in so far into the everyday life of human beings because Adam of course yes. represents all of us and we are all in the position where we are in love with our body and we see it as mm -hmm. ourself but also if if you're in a tradition that sees you having something called the soul then it's like the soul is really what you should be concentrating on not the body so you have this tension and it's just a very human uh, thing it's just something we all deal with now this is absolutely fascinating stuff as you narrated, I'm thinking of Valentinian Gnosticism, so-called, with the doubles, course, yeah. all this kind of doubling at all levels going on. And I'm not the first person to, to make that connection. I'm also thinking of uh, Manichaeism, which mm -hmm. will have been around in a big way during the formative years of this uh, religion, right through... I mean, we don't even know how long Manichaeism was, was a very active in that bit of what's now Iraq, Iran, but also, you know, further east. So definitely part of the ideological furniture of these people mm -hmm. for many centuries, many, many centuries. More generally, I'm thinking of uh, the emanatory thing and also the idea of a higher world, which is just, it's everything that's in our world is there, but in perfect form, I think of late Platonism, late Platonist philosophy. This is this could be Plotinus's uh, noose, you know, I mean, li literally everything that's in our world is in the noose, except perfect, without flaws, without accidents. You know, he's speaking in a philosophic register, so obviously he's talking about poietes, like the sort of ac what, what uh, scholastic philo philosophy will call accidents. It's all there, and you can go live there, and you want to go live there, actually. That's like the goal. The idea of the savior coming into the world but having to sneak in because the archontic powers identified with the planets are like on the watch— this appears in numerous texts, often called Gnostic. So there's loads of really fascinating resonances in these stories with a whole host of late antique um, beliefs, as well as this obvious, you know, drawing on Jewish lore, clearly, in, you know, like the sort of having ancient antediluvian prophets who live really long and stuff like that. Well, you would have wanted to know whether, in fact, they are Gnostic and whether there is any value to this category. Yeah, well, let's let's turn to the question of Gnosticism. And we've interviewed the scholar Williams on the podcast, so we've already called into doubt the whole 
usefulness of the term Gnosticism, but we're still forced from time to time to use it. And a lot of those things I just ran through, like the idea of the secret savior, the idea of a world of light that is our true home, but we're here in this world of mixture or darkness or whatever. The idea that the gods who created this world might not be the best gods out there. They might, they might be deluded that they are the best god, but they're actually not. And that the higher up gods have to kind of intervene and correct that problem. All of this stuff is among the themes that are typically considered Gnostic. Uh, Manichaeism has all of these themes, and so therefore people have said it's Gnostic or Gnostic adjacent or whatever. Having set the stage that way, when someone says Gnostic, we can't just assume we know what they mean right from the outset. Yeah. We can then go on to talk about whether or not this stuff, the, the Mandean religion, is Gnostic. And, and to highlight why that's maybe interesting and important, some scholars have said Gnosticism, ancient Gnosticism, was su successfully suppressed by the Christians on the, on the one hand in the, in the Roman realm and Sasanians and then later Muslims in the Sasanian realm. So Gnosticism dies out at a certain point, except for the Mandeans, who continue right. to this day to be Gnostics. Right. I mean, this is a kind of simplistic view of history, but we have to ask ourselves, we need to interrogate exactly what work terms like Gnosticism are doing for us, whether they're useful. And I find it very useful in, in communicating with an audience of people, not just my colleagues who are engaged in the academic study of religion, but also people who just have an interest in these things. Immediately when you mention the word Gnostic, they have a, a sort of idea of what it means. Not everyone does. Some people may think, well, does this mean that they don't believe in any religion? Are they agnostic? I don't know. But in general, when you mention the word Gnostic to an educated audience, they immediately start thinking of things and you can fill in the gaps much more easily that way. I would say that actually it is a useful term. All right. Uh, with caveats. Now right, we're talking. To, to use in this, yeah. I would say that Gnosticism is a useful term. And I would also say, uh, even though I may disagree with this idea that the only surviving Gnostic, although I myself said this in print, uh, Mendian is the only surviving Gnostic community from late antiquity. I think that's overly simplistic, uh, but it's useful for, say, the, the jacket of a book. I would say that if you're not using this term to describe Mendians, then it obviously loses a lot of its value in incantatory power. Because to start off with, as you yourself note, many of the aspects of Mendian religion that are most central to their own identity and among the most cherished beliefs of their community are directly relatable to that of other traditions so-called Gnostic, right? Number two, their name, Mandayan, right, comes from their word, manda, which means knowledge. Now, of course, there are two words for knowledge, there are multiple words for knowledge in this language. In this case, it has a very characteristic prenasalization or dissimulation of the, the middle consonant, right? So there's a word, madda, which means uh, knowledge, but almost always lay knowledge, right? Just simply secular knowledge. And then there's the word banda, which is a sort of, we might call gnosis. But for them to call themselves the knowledge people strikes me as perhaps maybe even too much on the nose, right? Like, right. like if, you, if you were looking for a community calling themselves the Gnostics, here you are. It's just in Aramaic, not in Greek. Got it. Yeah. So as we try to unpack the term Gnostic, and kind of liberate it from its origins in, um, I mean, undoubtedly there were communities that called themselves Gnostic. So the, the texts that are available to us suggest this and the survival of the Mendians do as well. But we know the Gnostics best through two things here in the West. Number one is the at times polemicistic uh, accounts of primarily Christian scholars of heresy. Yep both ancient and modern, right? Which, you know, we cannot automatically assume or expect that everything they say is accurate, right? They're only human beings. And we certainly cannot assume that they're trying to portray their subjects in a charitable manner as we in the 21st century try hard and sometimes not succeed, but we do try to present our subjects in a charitable manner. The other thing is, is texts. So we have all of these texts and the study of Gnosticism has been egregiously text-based since its inception. Yep. And uh, these texts are fragmentary, right? We have a lot of manuscripts. They're great. Don't get me wrong. I'm a philologist. I love studying texts. But they're fragmentary. They're not curated by communities of practice. 
They're often found in a monastery somewhere and so on and so forth. So with Mendoyans, we have not only a living community with which we can engage and we can we use them as a check to see whether we're, what we're saying is right or wrong, whether we're misrepresenting them in any way. But they've also lovingly curated their texts over the centuries as the example of the colophons illustrates, right? Them carefully copying these manuscripts at times on their own initiative. So we have here a living tradition, which is the closest thing to what we see in the ancient texts in terms of Gnosticism, in, in which it, it, both their texts and their practices engage with Gnostic texts and practices very clearly. And uh, we are not, let's say, exploiting or employing them to the best ability. So I would say that if, if the term Gnosticism is to be uh, revived, if it is to be liberated from this history of polemics, then Mendines have to be at the center of that attempt. Boom. The program for the future. That yes, exactly. is absolutely fascinating. Now, do you, you yourself have engaged, I take it, with Mendines in the field, as it were? You've met them, you've chatted with them. Are there any Mandaeans who are on board with this? I, I really wonder, you know, especially now that many of them will be living in what, like Toronto or, or Australia or wherever and mingling with, well, they're not living in the marshes and keeping to themselves anymore. Let's put it that way, right? No. Are any of them going, you know, doing a kind of like outreach program with scholarship and trying to in, in any way engage with that um, understanding of their, of what they do on a, on a kind of larger um, stage? Absolutely, but Mandaeans being human beings are often of multiple approaches, even in the same person. So there are some who would say that this term Gnostic is imposed upon them and it's fake. Uh, they have their own interpretation of their religion. There are, there are Mandaean intellectuals who are engaged in an intellectual project to prove the legitimacy of their religion, which in the context of the 21st century means making it more like Islam, in my opinion. Right. Okay. So for them, they, having grown up in a, a thoroughgoingly Islamic environment, right, even if it is a secular state like Iraq, their model for what a legitimate religion is, as opposed to superstition and folklore, is Islam. And so their presentation of their religion would differ very much from mine. Some of them would be listening to this podcast and perhaps shaking their heads saying, this is all nonsense, it's folklore, even if the texts say this, is, these are products of lesser minds. The pure religion that we espouse is somewhat much more like that of other legitimate religions like Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. So that's another intellectual project in which Mendians engage. So you, third what, one would be the, what you might call yeah. Mendian apologetics on the world stage or on the stage of the you have a lot of history that. of religions. Got it. Sorry to interrupt. Go on. Precisely. I mean, there was a project uh, 20 plus years ago in which three intellectuals, uh, two of the Mendian, uh, translated portions of the Genzarabba, the, the chief scripture of the Mendians, into Arabic. And they made sure to eliminate anything that may offend Muslim sensibilities. Um, so, for example, the account of the end of time uh, they alluded to earlier appears in the 18th book of the, the, Genza, the Genza Yamina. They got rid of almost all of it because it contains stuff that you don't find in Islam, except for the story of Noah, which you do know. So, uh, you know, this is and, and the book they had was it was all done in green and it had this lovely border. It looked like a Quran. And there's even a video of these intellectuals presenting the book to Saddam Hussein, which, you know, gives me chills when I see it. So wow. like th this is self-legitimization. And the, the way that they legitimate themselves is through kind of appealing to the hegemonic religious cultures of their area. Then there are those who are aligning themselves with. Assyrians, who obviously identify their own community with another empire, another hegemonic power, right? The great uh, um, Babylonian and Assyrian empires of Mesopotamia. And so they highlight those aspects of their identity, which engage mostly with those Mesopotamian texts and with traditional Mesopotamian religions, of which there are a lot. I mean, I could go on for a whole nother episode about those things that seem to continue ancient Mesopotamian practices in the Mendayan religion. Um, and they, they to want be, nothing. Yes. To be, um, to put that, make that concrete without going on about it for many, many episodes, yeah. although I might have to call you back to do that because that sounds fascinating. Uh, what do we mean by ancient Mesopotamian religions? Are we talking about like the, the polytheist canons of 
Ea and and the you know sort of what we would call Akkadian language group religions before monotheism came around. Is that what we're talking about? Yes. Got it. Yes. Okay, please continue. Oh, so, you know, put simply, it's the worship of the stars and the planets, which has been attributed to Mendians before by Western scholars, by some Muslim scholars. In no way do I read in Mendian texts that they worship stars and planets. They fear them, which is a different matter, but yeah. they don't propitiate or worship them. That's a no-no. However, when you read uh, certain things like the Asfar Malwashi, which is one of their books, right? It's the, the, the book of the Zodiac, according to which... Uh, you divine the future based upon things like the hour of your birth, right? You can use this information to tell someone's future in, in a geomantic way. Uh, many of the omen texts in that book are ripped from the cuneiform clay tablets in the Amina series cow. in Akkadian. Holy yeah. cow. So it's, it's like they did it word for word translations into Mandaic from Akkadian. When we last spoke about the Akkadian scribal academies and their and the Anuma Elish and, and this whole uh, omen literature way back in the podcast, our listeners might have thought, oh, and then they handed that on to the Greeks and Greeks mm. developed zodiacal astrology and that was the end of the Near Eastern scribal academies. No, gentle listener, that isn't what happened. The, the incredible continuity of those uh, state bureaucratic astral observatory uh, groups went on into the Persian, the Achaemenid Empire, then it went on into the Hellenistic Empire of the Seleucids. So this this is like quasi-state institution with serious, serious staying power. And I don't think we ever really see an end to it. So here's an example of that, of the that same knowledge, like the actual omen texts being transmitted into late antique religion of some kind. Let's call it Gnosticism, just for fun. Wow. So yeah, I mean, it, it, it's... Uh... A religious tradition which combines within itself, um, obviously, many traditions. It instantiates many traditions, including some which go all the way back to uh, Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia. And, you know, some Mendians find a lot of value in this, right? It, it helps, it gives them a sort of cachet as being one of the aboriginal religions of, of Iraq. And that's certainly how they present themselves. And it's even how some, for example, Iraqi state authorities have presented them as well, right? Mendaism is something worth preserving in Iraq because they are our oldest religion here, oldest surviving religion. Wow. So that's one. It's obviously this is diametrically opposed to the other traditions. So those people who want to see themselves purifying the religion to make it more legitimate would like to purge these influences from their tradition. And they do indeed do that. There are a lot of other Mandaeans who are engaged in directly working with uh, Western scholars. More writing in Arabic, of course, because most Mendians here to this day primarily use Arabic in the home, although that's changing since they're now growing up in a diaspora. Their children certainly will not be using Arabic in their home uh, for the most part. And uh, their scholarship sort of, it resembles academic scholarship in the sense that they very often fall um, victim to some of our worst excesses. So like, it can be polemical. It can extrapolate a lot from very little. It can be not at all charitable to their subjects. What I think is needed is for scholars to help guide them, the, the scholars who actually do want to adopt this academic language, towards engaging in, in, a, in a freer marketplace of ideas without all of this contumony and this, uh, you know, the, the personal attacks and that sort of thing, because those are characteristic of this sort of thing. So, yeah, to, to put it briefly, there are at least three or four streams of Mendian intellectuals, the, the ones who want to purify their religion and make it more like something like Islam, the ones who uh, identify very strongly with the ancient traditional Mesopotamian religions uh, and who want to highlight that. And then the third, who are engaging directly with Western scholars such as myself, with uh, Lady Drower, with Yuren Buckley, who are making all kinds of wonderful contributions based upon their own knowledge of their tradition, which is, you know, obviously far deeper than anything I as an outsider could ever hope to acquire. So for, for any listeners who, are, who really are just interested in Gnosticism, <laughs> this, yeah. is, this is the window, right? This is an unparalleled way of, um, you know, we have this idea of like so much time and effort has been spent and continues to be spent on trying to reconstruct what Gnostics would have been like. Did they have ecclesiolae? Did they not? Were they part of the larger Christian community? Where, where did they live? Who, what were they doing? All this kind of stuff. 
we have some of that for the keys, you know, some evidence of how they lived and what their social structure was like. Much, much less for, say, Valentinians or Sethians or other groups that some some of which only survive in uh, heresiological attacks. They just their ideas. This these are their ideas which are wrong, and that's it. That's all we know about them. Um, right. Here we have some people who are alive and well as a thriving community. And that is absolutely with fascinating. With all that entails, yeah. Mm. Right, with all the messiness that that entails. But, um, right. but bring it on. They evolve. They're, as, they're, as, they are, as I've just demonstrated, they evolve to their circumstances like any living organism. And uh, you know, I think that's precisely why a lot of philologists and other scholars in that vein don't necessarily like working with living communities because they view them as... Uh, hybrid, they view them as not static, and you know you don't like to, to aim at a moving target. You want to aim at something that's static and just sitting there, and that's why so many of us are more comfortable working with texts. But at the same time, and I think as you've acknowledged, you really, really need to center the Mendians, the living community, if you want to understand what these communities look like in the past. Charles Hebel, stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>